The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Coming up on American POTUS, the European influence of Thomas Jefferson. It was the 1780s, and this future POTUS was suffering through middle age. His wife had passed away, and he had sworn off politics after a rough stint as Virginia's governor. He was in desperate need of a big change. So off he went to spend the next five years as America's representative to France. How to make wine, grow rice, design landscapes and buildings were all at the top of his list. But it was his first-hand experience with the French monarchy that may have been the biggest takeaway of all. Our third POTUS, Thomas Jefferson. He's on this episode of American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunn. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. By sharing their challenges, their stories, and their personalities, we hope to add some clarity and perspective for today's heated political conversations. Joining us for this episode about our third POTUS is University of Virginia history graduate, attorney, and author Derek Baxter. With Jefferson's own writings as his guide, Derek traveled throughout Europe trying to get a sense of what this president saw, felt, and experienced. What resulted is his book called In Pursuit of Jefferson, Traveling Through Europe with the Most Perplexing Founding Father. If you want to find out more and perhaps get a copy, which we highly recommend, you can find a link on AmericanPOTUS.org. And not only is Derek qualified to talk about Jefferson because he wrote a book about him, but Derek also played Jefferson in his fourth grade play. I'd say that makes him a true expert. Derek, the stage is set for you. Welcome to American POTUS. Well, great. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Derek, I so enjoyed this book. Really fascinating. Uh, to start today, let, let's step back and say, talk about why did he travel in Europe? When was he there? And in what capacity was Jefferson traveling in Europe? Sure. So he went to Europe in 1784 and, and stayed for five years. And he was basically uh, our ambassador over there. I mean, if you want to get technical, we didn't use the term uh, ambassador to France for, for another century or so, just because of reasons of protocol. He was called the minister to France. And so when he first went over there, uh, we already had a couple of really good ones, a good uh, diplomats. We had John Adams and, and Benjamin Franklin. So it was really an all-star cast. Uh, and Jefferson was going to focus on commercial matters in particular. But uh, Franklin came home the next year, and then Adams went off to to London. So so Jefferson was the man there in Paris for five years. And it was, it was a really interesting time for him. And, and I really want to focus on this in the book, because it's not... The, the period of Jefferson's life that that we mostly think about, you know, we often think about him as the younger man, well, younger 33-year-old who wrote the Declaration of Independence or the older man who was president. And this is the middle-aged Jefferson who went away from Virginia, you know, to represent us, but also really in part because he just needed a change of scenery. He was at a very kind of low ebb in his life. Uh, his wife had passed away. His 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 time as governor of Virginia during the revolution had not gone well. He had sworn off politics. So James Madison, you know, his trusted friend, arranged for Jefferson to go and get this appointment in part because Jefferson had so many talents, he would obviously help us, but really also just to get Jefferson 
out away from home into a new setting where I think he really started to find himself again. And he did so many things over there in Europe. Uh, I just had a lot of fun exploring his time over there. Yeah, it was fun, fun reading about your exploration of his time over there. I can tell you yeah. that. And, and and one thing that you, you used to help guide your travels was a letter that Jefferson wrote called uh, Hints to Americans Traveling in Europe. So can you tell us a bit about that letter and what motivated you then to follow those hints and, and seek out what, what were called the, the objects of attention? Sure, sure. So, so Jefferson, uh, you know, he's, he's living there in Paris and these two young Americans show up at his doorstep. Uh, they were sons of acquaintances, friends he had back home, and they were going to go off on the grand tour of Europe. Uh, Thomas Shippen and, and John Rutledge Jr. Were, were the two young men. And, you know, they naturally asked Jefferson, kind of being a man in the know, where, the, where they should go. And Jefferson, he's, you know, he's the ultimate overachiever. He didn't just say, okay, go here. Here's, here's a hotel, you know, make sure you do this. Uh, he wrote like this, almost this guidebook. It was 5,000 words long. It was just for them. He didn't publish it as, as a guidebook, but it really kind of serves as a guidebook. And he was kind of tough on them. He didn't just say, you know, go out here. He, di he didn't treat this trip as a lark or a vacation at all. He gave him homework to do. He said, you know, there are these eight objects of attention that an American should focus on. So he told them to investigate everything from architecture to agriculture uh, to manufacturing, to politics. He really wanted them to study and not, not with the idea of, of copying things from Europe so much as to kind of taking the best ideas out and figuring out what, what we could do with them back at home and also seeing what to avoid. So he wrote this really interesting document uh, and he drew, Jefferson drew from his own travels. So he was stationed there in Paris, but he had had the opportunity to go on these three really long uh, trips away from Paris. Uh, one went, took him all the way to the south of France and then over into northern Italy. And he had one in which he roamed around the English countryside. He was sent to London to do some diplomatic work. And, and then he kind of, he left with John Adams and explored the English gardens outside of London. And, and then the other trip was to Nether the Netherlands and Germany. So he had taken all of these notes from his own travels. And he just loved the chance when these two young travelers showed up at his doorstep. He, he loved this opportunity of just putting everything he had observed into writing and memorializing it. Uh, so he wrote up this great, this great travel guide and it really appealed to me. I think I was at a point, this was, this was a good decade or so ago, but I was, I was hitting middle age myself. I was around the same, the same age actually as, as Jefferson was when he went off to Paris uh, pushing 40. And, and I was just looking for a challenge. I was looking for something new to do with my life and looking to kind of maybe re recapture that sense that you sometimes have when you're young of, of wanting to just be out there on the road and, you know, uh, experiencing new things, looking for adventure, all those things. Uh, so I found this guide, I came across it and eventually I decided why not, why not go out there and, and try that myself? Uh, yeah. so then I had to pitch it to my family. But, uh, <laughs> How they respond to that. Well, you know, they, uh, they, they, they were, they, they liked it. They were on board. My kids yeah. were pretty small. I don't think they had much say. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't exactly a democracy, but, um, <laughs> but my wife was the key person to convince and, and she liked the idea. I mean, she, she embraced it and she was a true sport because we took a bunch of these trips over the years. I think, I think it, it my kids, it took them years to realize that, you know, other people, 
you know, took family vacations that didn't all involve like finding where Jefferson had gone in Europe. And, you know, you didn't have to find some historical spot, you know, to take a to take a trip because that's all we did, you know, whenever we had the chance for quite a while. But it was a, it was a great thing. It was a great way to bring us all together and to experience things together as a family. And we all saw the sites, the objects of attention, as Jefferson called them, you know, in our own way. Uh, so it was it was just a great a, a great excuse, really, to get out there for all of us on the road. Sure. Now, I know that Jefferson said in his hints that American travelers in Europe should get to know the locals. So how did he do that in his travels and how did that work out for you and your family? Yeah, Jefferson, he really did want to do a different kind of trip. So, you know, he could have he could have just written to, you know, gotten letters of introduction to all of the aristocratic families in Europe and gone and stayed with them and, and, and had that kind of trip. Um, and instead, he really wanted to, to, to see the sites, but also really get to know the people, to, to see the locals, as it were. And, and he did that. He had a couple of strategies. He, um, he didn't travel on his official diplomatic uh, passport. He just traveled as a private citizen. Uh, he took his own carriage and would constantly get new horses, get new postillions to help drive it. Uh, he hired valets as he went, and eventually he found this one French valet in Burgundy that he liked a lot, that, that he stuck with. So he was getting to know people as he went. And he even had this idea that uh, he really wanted to, even though you know, he's a wealthy person, the the, the representative of, of the U.S. and France, he really wanted to get to know peasants, you know, the common people. And he hit on strategies like he would he would just go off by himself on his horse, you know, ramble through the vineyards, as he called it. And, and if he saw a farmer, he would stop and he'd ask for a glass of water. And it was really a chance he saw to kind of, you know, start up a conversation, go into the person's house even, uh, maybe subtly ask a few questions about how, you know, how the person was living, you know, things like that to try to get an idea of what, of what people were really like and how they really live. So this was remarkable. You didn't see, you know, a lot of our founders weren't really going out there and trying to make connections at that level, uh, that he did. And, you know, that took him, that took him all, he took that approach all over Europe. I tried to do that as well. Um, you know, we, we did it on our own scale, but we tried to connect with people, wherever we could. Um, I got to meet people in vineyards. I found a, you know, someone who made cheese in, in this, you know, near the same place where Jefferson had learned how to make cheese in Italy. Uh, you know, got to talk to her about her life a little bit. Uh, we actually made some, some friends there on one of our travels, some French friends that we still keep up with and we've wanted to stay with them afterwards. They've come here to stay with us. So it's that kind of thing about travel, about kind of building those bridges that, Jefferson loved to do, and, and that we certainly tried to do too. Wow, that sounds terrific. I, you mentioned cheese, but also wine was very important to Jefferson. He became a bit of an expert as he traveled in France. What did you learn about how he did that, why it was important to him, and what, what did you learn about wine in your travels? Well, I, I, it, that was a true labor of love. I mean, of, of all the hardship you know, journeys, learning about wine just the way Jefferson did, that was one that I certainly took to heart. Uh, <laughs> sounds rough. Yeah, Jefferson... Really. Yeah, he he loved wine. No, so Jefferson and he he was such a fascinating guy, and that was one reason I wanted to do these travels. Not just because it seemed like a great adventure, but because you know I'd grown up really looking up to Jefferson, admiring him, seeing him as this this Renaissance man, and he was just interested in everything. 
you know, where, wherever he went, it was, it was so hard to live up to sometimes. He'd go through a village and he'd, he'd note the climate, he'd note the, the, the architecture, he'd, he'd record what kind of wine they were making. Uh, and he was just at the top of his game, you know, in terms of whatever he observed. So for wine, Jefferson had several reasons for being interested in wine. He actually thought there was a health reason to drinking wine because, you know, back then we had so much bacteria in water that, you know, that wasn't fully understood, but it was understood that people get sick from, from drinking certain types of water. So Americans drank alcohol all the time, even at breakfast, even, even, even kids would have very watered down beer, uh, something to kill the bacteria and, you know, that via the alcohol and Jefferson was really concerned about whiskey. He was not a fan. He thought Americans were having too much whiskey and he saw wine as in effect a safer alternative, you know, because you, you know, you, you, it, it, it took more to get drunk on wine, I suppose, you know, he thought it was uh, maybe a little more sophisticated and just a better option for people to, to have. Uh, and he, he wanted to move our country towards drinking more wine, less hard liquor. So that was one reason he was investigating why. He also was looking for another cash crop for American farmers. Could we grow wine grapes and 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 make it in, make it into wine? And of course, he just loved wine. You know, he loved the finer things of life. He he loved this chance to experience all these different wines of Europe. And this was way way before all the guides we have and all the point systems. So Jefferson really he had to he had to figure it out for himself. He had to go directly to vineyards. And figure out which ones were the best ones, and make contacts with producers, uh, and which he did. He he went to you know Burgundy and Bordeaux and some of the great vineyards, but he also went to a lot of kind of out of the way, you know, more economical ones. And and for the rest of his life, Jefferson would would write to people in France and have certain wines shipped over to him. So he he made those contacts. Um, so anyway, that that as I said was. That had to be one of my favorite topics to investigate. Sure. Well, why was he not more successful in, in bringing those vineyards back to his native Virginia? He really did want to grow wine here. That was one of his dreams. And Jefferson, he loved science, but he, you know, and he was ahead of his time, but he wasn't ahead of his time on everything. He just couldn't figure out how to grow wine. And there were a couple of things he didn't know. First of all, the climate in, in Virginia, you know, he, he was bringing back different grapes and experimenting with them. Uh, you know, we have a very humid climate here, uh, you know, we've all, all a range of seasons. And I, I think at first he, he just didn't know the exact wine grapes to plant. But beyond that, the, the, the biggest problem was something called the phylloxera louse, which, uh, which America, the new world had, the old world did not. So, uh, you know, we have native grapes obviously here in, in America that had developed a root stock that was, uh, that could resist this louse, which attacked the roots. Uh, but European European vineyards didn't have that. So he was bringing back all of these grape cuttings from, from Europe, and they would all fail here. So much, you know, years later, a century or more later, people figured out how to graft the European grapes onto American rootstock. And that's what's done today. But, uh, but Jefferson didn't know that. So he didn't realize didn't realize his dream of growing all those, those those great wine grapes here, but um, but he did keep experimenting with wines from all over his whole life. Let, let's stay with food and drink uh, for a moment here. You, you tell a really fascinating story about how we almost lost Jefferson to an Italian jail. So, can you tell us about his chancy rice smuggling 
and why he thought it might be worth the risk. Yeah, this was this was a crazy episode of of Jefferson's travels, which I came across. Uh, he really wanted to go to Italy, so he obviously he's our ambassador in France, not supposed to be in Italy, and Italy wasn't a whole country at the time. Obviously, it was ca- carved up into different uh, different kingdoms, different small city states, republics, even. Uh, but it was a patchwork. Um, but he really wanted to go there because the classical world was was extremely important towards the founders. Jefferson loved Italy. Uh, and, and he found a reason. He was down in the south of France and he realized that people, you know, the French, the French there were all buying Italian rice, not the Carolinian rice that, that, that Americans had shipped over. And he didn't know why, you know, he, he, you know, Jefferson wanted to crack the mystery. He thought this would be useful for American commerce. Also seemed like the best way to do it was for him personally to go to Italy. So, so off he went, he, he went for just three weeks and he told his boss, uh, John Jay back home only after he'd already left. Uh, so he really wasn't supposed to be there, but, um, but the idea was to figure out, is this a different variety of rice or are they doing something different? Are they processing it differently? And he got to the Piedmont region where most of most Italian rice is grown near Milan. And he found out that it was a different variety and okay, great. He, he planned to bring some home and, and send it to uh, the Carolinas and see what they could do with it. And then he found the catch that uh, the kingdom of Sardinia, which controlled that area at the time, forbade exporting this rice in its raw form. They're trying to protect just what it was. And, uh, and not only that, the penalty, that, which seems a little high to me, but the penalty was the death penalty. So, so Jefferson so and Jefferson proceeded anyway. He just blew on right, you know, blew right by that law because he was determined to get this rice out. He brought the rice back at maybe some personal risk to himself. He crossed the Alps with with this rice in in, in a sack and brought it back and sent it to South Carolina to some friends he had there. And they basically said, thanks, but no thanks. And please stop sending it to us because it's mixing with our native rice. <laughs> they, they didn't like it as much. Uh, so all that for nothing. Although Jefferson did, he, he, he didn't give up, actually. On the, even you know later on in Paris, he kept talking to people about rice. He found a variety of rice uh, that, could be, that didn't have to be grown uh, in the water, upland rice, which, which he thought could be much healthier, um, so he he kept at it because he was a curious person, first of all, and he really wanted to, you know, see what he could do to help uh, the U.S. economy. We had just come out of the Revolutionary War. We certainly needed all the help we could get. But he wrote, he wrote later, he was very proud of all this. He wrote in his autobiography, the greatest service which can be rendered any country is to introduce, you know, a new variety of, 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 of crops, a, a new plant that could be sold. Uh, so, so that's, that's just what he, this kind of epitomized everything Jefferson loved about traveling. He was experiencing new things. Uh, he was learning, but they were very practical. He, he wanted to bring, bring all this back to improve things back home. Well, you noted that among his travels were, were, was a trip to England. And I think it's no secret that Jefferson was no fan of England nor of its monarch, but he loved English gardens. So why did he prefer those gardens to the more ordered French variety? He did love those English gardens. Uh, Jefferson saw the French gardens as just too artificial. So 
you know, if, if you're familiar with the gardens of France, the, the formal gardens of France, you know, think Versailles, everything is very ordered. Uh, all, you know, everything's in its place. All of the bushes and shrubs are exactly clipped and, 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 you know, some of them are even, you know, clipped to make it look like they're people or animals. Uh, you know, Je- that, that wasn't Jefferson's style. He, he wanted something more natural looking and he loved what he loved about the English gardens was this sense of nature, uh, of, of, of liberty, of freedom, because I think a lot of classical writers associated, you know, uh, the natural state with, with freedom. Uh, he just loved, he loved the way that they were, they were wild, but not too wild because the English garden craze of the time of the 18th century, it, the idea was to, to make things look very natural, but it was almost like a painting. It was still very composed. So Jefferson loved this style. He went around, he visited 19 landscape gardens uh, when he was in England. And he really saw gardening as, as an art form that was just as important. He ranked it, right, he ranked it frankly, higher than, than painting and, and statuary, as he put it in his travel guide. He thought this was a particularly important art form that Americans could, could, uh, could learn about because, you know, we have so many plants, you know, we, we, he saw that our continent as, as filled with nature. He thought, he thought all you had to do was cut out the superabundant plants and there's your garden. You know, of course it's a little harder than that, but, but he was, he was very interested in it. So he traveled around England. He was, he even noted there were American plants, uh, grown over there and, he really, in Paris, he started a, a sort of botanical exchange. He met some other, some other people in Paris who were as passionate about gardening and, and nature as he was. They started plant exchanges. Uh, they would ship, you know, seeds back and forth across the Atlantic, even after he returned home. So this was kind of a lifelong passion of his. Uh, and um, really, really interesting to see because it's something that, you know, it's maybe not as as well known today, but kind of Jefferson's ideas for gardening. He sketched out many different types of of landscaping ideas for Monticello. If you go visit uh, Jefferson's home, Monticello in Virginia today, you, you actually get a good sense of his plans because they've uh, they've they've restored things to to be more like they were in Jefferson's day. So today, you can either you can take a bus up to the top of the mountain from the base, or you can walk. It's, it's not that far. And, but either way you go through woods and, and visitors at the time said this was kind of very savage woods. I mean, they were very wild. And then you emerge at the top and you see uh, pastoral landscapes. So uh, a lot of those elements, you know, he observed in Europe and he kind of brought back and tweaked them to, to, uh, to install them in Monticello. Yeah. And if our listeners haven't been to Monticello, go, go immediately. It's, it's an amazing, beautiful place. And certainly when you're there at Monticello, you see that Jefferson admired European architecture. So why was that the case? And why did he think it was important to apply those architectural lessons here in America? Yeah, that, that was one of the, the areas, the subjects, the objects of attention as Jefferson would have it, that, that he, that I think he learned the most about while he was, in Europe, uh, he loved classical architecture, or what we or neoclassical, even what we call today, which was what the French and others were doing in Jefferson's time to kind of imitate the buildings of Rome. Uh, we didn't really have buildings like that in America, 
Jefferson had designed a first version of Monticello before he left that looked nothing like what Monticello does to, you know, looks like today. He had copied it from old books and it didn't have a dome. It, it didn't have that, that kind of that beautiful sense of flow that you see with, with Monticello's architecture. And he learned a lot of these techniques in Europe. He took notes everywhere he went. He was, he was very much drawn, as I said, to the classical and neoclassical architecture, not a fan at all of Gothic, not of Rococo. He wanted, he wanted the architecture that made people think of the, of, of the classical world. And he thought this was important. It was very educational. Uh, he thought that Americans should look back to the Romans. A lot of the founders did. There's this real craze, you know, for, for the ancient Romans, um, because they, they saw the Romans as, as embodying all these, all these virtues of, of strength and, and, and balance in their architecture. And Jefferson really thought this was important as, as a civics lesson you know, for us, for American citizens to look and, 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 and see their public buildings and think back to ancient Rome. He thought this would inspire people to, you know, to live up to those ideals of the Roman Republic and whatnot. So he brought back all of these ideas. He brought back ideas for, for redoing Monticello. Uh, he, he, he would redesign it when he came home. He, he worked on designs, uh, the Virginia State Capitol. Uh, he helped shape some of the architecture of Washington, D.C. And I think he just really, really popularized this idea of, of, of classical architecture here in America. I think he's, he has a lot to do with it, as, as much really as anyone else in our history of, of, of making it kind of the default style for, you know, for important buildings for, for a real long time. So that was something he, he absolutely brought back from Europe, just all of those buildings he saw and the, reason, and, and the ideas that he didn't just have to to copy something from a book that he had seen so many different buildings, he began to design his own buildings and to incorporate elements of them here and there, but, but use his own creativity, his own genius and, and start to come up with design elements that, that hadn't been seen before. And, and using that, that knowledge and that skill at, at the university of Virginia, right? Well, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. That, that's a UNESCO world heritage site along with Monticello. Um, He, he designed the, the, the central building, uh, the rotunda, just 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 a beautiful building, one one of the best that that he designed. Um, and and there on the grounds of the University of Virginia, he also he he designed. This was an, his his great retirement project. He he designed what he called the academical village. So his idea was to have professors living in what he called pavilions and student quarters in between them. So professors and students would all mingle and they would all. Uh, walk out onto the central lawn and and share ideas. Uh, the students wound up being seeming more interested in drinking and carousing, and that <laughs> has funny. somewhat changed, not entirely over the years. <laughs> but uh, but what Jefferson did at UVA was uh, with these pavilions, he made each one a different style, a different architectural style, which was totally lost on me. I happened to go to UVA myself uh, undergrad, and I didn't realize each one of them was supposed to be a lesson. Of okay, this this is Greek, and this is incorpor- this this particular building is incorporating these elements from ancient Rome. But that was very much Jefferson's thought that each one of these buildings was in effect a lesson there in plain sight for students just to walk out and and, and examine. Um, and, that, and it's just a beautiful beautiful school to walk around. It is indeed. It is indeed. So let's talk about his travels in France before the French Revolution. What did he think at that point of the French monarchy and the society that it ruled? 
Well, Jefferson, it, this will not be a, a great shocker, I think, to anyone to hear that he was not a fan of the monarchs. Uh, he, he wrote in this travel guide even that you should, you should go observe the monarchies of Europe uh, to learn about them and make sure we have nothing like that ever, ever again in America because they, they, are, they exemplify the weakest and worst part of mankind. He said so. So he hated their ostentatiousness and and the lack of liberty and, and all that. He loved France. He loved being in France for all the culture and it was one of the intellectual capitals of the world at the time. So Jefferson just thrived in that element. But but he he was not at all a fan of the French monarchy, even recognizing, of course, that they had helped us uh, greatly during during the revolution, which which he was appreciative of. But in terms of the relations with their own people, with the French people, Jefferson certainly wanted reform. Um, so that was his view before the French Revolution. And as he was traveling around France, he, he was very much noting, you know, the the lives of of peasants, of workers. And he was telling his his friends back in Paris, who were, of course, you know, among the elite, including uh, the Marquis de Lafayette. He, he was telling them about this and saying, you should do this, too. You should get out there and strike up conversations with the real people of France and see how they're really doing and see what we can what you may want to do differently. So we know that in 1789, the revolution broke out and Jefferson was still in Paris. So how did he react and what role did he play, if any, when that when that started? Uh, he was there until. Uh, the end of October, uh, early November, 1789. And of course, the fall of the Bastille was was July 14th. So uh, he was there in the lead up to the Bastille and then for a few months afterwards. And Jefferson, he loved it. He thought this was great. He, uh, he thought this was just like the American Revolution, that this is, this is, uh, this is democracy on the rise. Uh, and Obviously, it didn't turn out that way. But in those early days of the French Revolution, uh, this this was long before the Reign of Terror. This was long before the guillotines. It really did start off as more of a reform movement. Uh, Jefferson and a lot of people thought that it was going to lead to some form of constitutional monarchy, kind of like in Britain, where there would be some checks and balances on the king, but there would be some kind of representation in France because to simplify the history a little bit, they didn't have an active parliament uh, the same way that Britain did. Uh, there, there really were very few outlets for, for, you know, for most people to make their voice heard. So Jefferson thought this was a great step in the, in the, in, in the right direction. And he actually, he worked with Lafayette, who was one of the leaders uh, at the time, one of the more moderate leaders to, to help craft this document the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen. And this was like the French Bill of Rights. This was this landmark document that's still talked about today. It's still very important today. And Jefferson actually worked behind the scenes and had some suggestions about protecting individual rights in this document. Uh, And he left kind of with these kind of, you know, rose-colored glasses, you know, left in the fall of 1789, really thinking that uh, the French Revolution was on the right track. How did he react once back in America and and that revolution started to become radicalized? He was a little slow to recognize that things had taken a turn for the worse. Even even as one of his protégés who had stayed behind in Paris, uh, this young man named William Short, uh, he was basically running our embassy at that time. And he was writing reports back to Jefferson. I don't think he wanted to believe it, uh, that this... 
this, um, you know, he believed in the March of Liberty and he, he had a hard time getting his head around the fact that the French Revolution had, uh, you know, had begun to arrest and <clears throat> eventually even execute some of his own friends. Uh, and part of the problems uh, for Jefferson was that the kind of the American French relations and American British relations became uh, a real, you know, full of full of controversy back home. And it's it's well known about his his debates with Alexander Hamilton in the cabinet. Hamilton being much more pro-British, Jefferson trying to de- defend the 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 French side of things. I think I think he kind of defensively uh, tried to justify what was going on in France in part because he didn't want closer relations. Uh, with Britain. So by the time he was president, he kind of could retrospectively look back and realize, you know, all the excesses. But this was actually a real political football, so to speak, in the 1790s. You know, do we, does America, uh, you know, do we move closer to Britain? Do we move closer to France? Um, And it was part, and it was a big, it was a big kind of motivating issue for Jefferson and James Madison and, and others who, became estranged from from Washington and, and from the cabinet, uh, they, they kind of rallied around the cause of France. Jeffer- Jefferson and the French Revolution, it's a complicated topic, but he ultimately did recognize, I think, some of the, you know, the important steps forward. It was at least, you know, it was, it was a haltering step, but it was France's first step towards republicanism and democracy. Let me turn now to a topic that's near and dear to me, uh, science. What did you learn about Jefferson and his views on science? And why do you say he was the, quote, founding citizen scientist. Well, Jefferson, Jefferson just loved science. And, and he, he wrote on several occasions, you know, that he felt drawn to politics, that he needed to enter politics, felt his country had called him. But if he had had his druthers, really what he would have been doing uh, would have been scientific experiments. Uh, that, was, that was one of his true passions. And he had a chance. He had a chance there in Europe to, to talk to other people engaged with science. And he did that on his travels. He, he was always taking notes uh, about technology that he saw. He was fascinated by steam engines. He was fascinated by canal gates. And, and typically he would see, he would, you know, he would see technology and he'd sketch it out. And then he'd think of ways to improve it. Or he'd think about, you know, how could he adapt this, you know, back home? He was very interested in in, in climate and in contrasting the climate of North America with Europe, some European uh, natural historians had come up with this theory, which, which sounds kind of crazy, but they, had, they assumed that America had a very unhealthy client, uh, climate, that we, were, we had a very cold and damp climate. And as a result, basically nothing, nothing would really amount to anything here. Uh, we didn't have we, you know, they, they were very mistaken, but they somehow thought that our climate prevented plants from growing as tall as they would in Europe, from animals being as large. And, you know, that just incensed Jefferson. First of all, it wasn't true, but he, you know, he, he, he did scientific research to try to refute this. He finally realized that uh, maybe the best piece of evidence he could, he could find would be just a massive American animal that would be bigger than its European counterpart. So he actually had the entire skeleton of a moose shipped to him in Paris. He commissioned uh, actually a Revolutionary War general to go out and bag a moose for him in, in New Hampshire, and, and they shipped the moose across to Jefferson. It, it, didn't, it didn't 
fare too well on the overseas voyage. It had lost a lot of its hide at that point. It was looking kind of scraggly, but nonetheless, he presented this moose uh, right there in the heart of, of Paris to uh, this natural historian, um, thinking that would prove his case. And so I'm not sure the moose, the moose did the trick, but he really wanted data. He believed in data and he would just take notes, scientific notes on, on everything uh, as he traveled. And so to your question, citizen science, citizen science is all about, uh, about regular people, non-specialists getting data that's useful for science. And Jefferson, you know, did that himself and he really wanted to train people to do it. He, he, he recorded the temperature uh, in the morning and at night, uh, for most of his life. So he has these records of, of his own citizen science, uh, data on, on climate, wherever he was. And he tried to get other correspondents to do the same. And he had this idea, which I think was a great one, which all of the, the representatives in Virginia, the idea was to give them all a thermometer and they go out there as part of their duties, not only to vote, but they also had to take a temperature reading. So then he'd get all this free data. So that that didn't work, but uh, but he was always he always thought that you know science belonged to everybody and everyone should engage in it, uh, and it was just a true passion of his. And I think that was one of the things he most enjoyed doing over there in Europe. As your book reminded us, and, and that in other ways, a real Renaissance man, an impressive man. I wonder sometimes did he ever sleep? He's always thinking of learning new things. But as your trips continued you were increasingly confronted with the Jefferson paradox, the, this defender of liberty who was a slave owner, whose very trips you were revisiting were financed on the backs of enslaved workers. So how did you come to grips with that legacy? I know it, at one point you, you stopped your trips, uh, and then why did you then resume them, uh, even with that legacy lurking in the background? That's that's an important question. It's 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 such a difficult question to grapple with. Uh, yes, we all know, you know, that Jefferson was a slave owner. It's certainly something that uh, that I was aware of before I went on this long eight year quest of, for following him. Uh, uh, I didn't realize how important it, it was to to his life. You know, I thought, okay, that's a facet of his life, and that's not the particular facet that I'm you know I'm going to drill down on in terms of. Uh, looking at, at Jefferson as a traveler, but his life really was intertwined with the institution of slavery in so many ways. It, it's you you really can't you really can't separate them. So yes, as you said, his trips were uh, were paid for uh, in large part through the tobacco that enslaved laborers uh, produced at, at his four plantations. Uh, but beyond that, it was uh, you know it, it it paid the bills, and it was also slavery was. Uh, an escape valve for, for Jefferson financially when, when he couldn't pay the bills. Uh, and that happened to him in Paris in 1785. His creditors were coming after him. He, he authorized the sale of 31 people back home. So things like that, as, as I was getting so excited about all these incredible things he, he did in Europe and, and, and how much I loved all these travels, you know, trying to reconcile that the, with the fact that all these people who were not free uh, were back in Virginia paying for that for Jefferson. Uh, it was it was it was something you know something to recognize the fact too that uh, all of these wonderful ideas he was coming up with on his travels these 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 ideas of he was going to plant a new variety of rice 
that he was going to design new buildings and he was going to re- rework his, his gardens. All that, of course, the labor that he had in mind for all of these projects was the labor of all those uh, of the enslaved people back home. So I couldn't separate at all. And you, and you shouldn't, you know, uh, the, the incredible cultural contributions Jefferson made with the fact that he was so involved with slavery. Uh, uh, James Hemings and Sally Hemings both lived in Paris uh, with him. They did not go on the, on these great trips that I'm talking about these three trips, but they were part of that life uh, of his in Paris. And uh, it's something worth remembering, you know, remembering their stories, which are important and powerful stories. And I think that's, I became, you know, uh, uh, disappointed in a way in Jefferson, just because, and, and I, you know, of course there's the idea of presentism. Are you importing current values toward the past? And you know, a lot of people have, have, have wrestled with that. The fact that Jefferson knew slavery was e- an evil institution, as he put it, he said it was a hideous blot and yet he continued. And yet he, in fact, he, he moved backwards on his public pronouncements during this time made me think about, uh, uh, about Jefferson in in a different light, uh, and in a, in a more critical light. So, what got me to continue on with the journey because because I wondered if this is even the the right journeys to be taking uh, was the recognition that so many enslaved people had their own journeys and their own stories that I got to explore and, and learn about and and discover, which I never would have had it not been for this project. But I, but I uh, I learned about. Uh, the story of of Robert Hemings, who did achieve his freedom uh, and lived in Richmond and had a full life uh, afterwards of of Peter Hemings, who uh, who also eventually achieved his freedom after many years in bondage uh, and had his own his own pursuits of of other enslaved people who did not who never achieved freedom, which was the vast majority. Only, only 10 people uh, were freed by Jefferson out of the 600 uh, people that he that that were his legal property. Um, people like James Hubbard, who, who fled uh, and were caught and then were sold down into Louisiana, probably, you know, probably sent to a very difficult fate down there. So uh, it's a painful subject. It's it's but it's one that I think my personal opinion for whatever that's worth that, that we as Americans, you know, need to uh, recognize and, and grapple with and think about it and remember all of the people that lived uh, there uh, on, at Monticello. So at the end of the day, with all your travels in Europe and America, understanding that legacy, but also seeing the other things you saw, where do you stand right now on Jefferson? I know that might be an unfair question, but, but where, how do you view him now compared to, you know, when you started that journey? Sure, sure. Well, I started kind of uh, started with a lot of hero worship of Jefferson. Uh, growing up in Virginia, as I said, I, he was always my my favorite founder, so to speak. I I I think my travels they started by humanizing him because I was reading what he did every day out there on the road, and uh, I I read about where he'd get lost and where he'd have trouble and carriage broke. The, you know, his carriage would break down. So you start to see him uh, more as, as a regular person when he was traveling. And then as, as I realized uh, what he did and didn't do with regards to slavery, that was also, you know, that's, that is a painful thing to, to think about. 
So, but I think I see him maybe as a, as a fuller person than I did before, uh, including on some topics that, that he was uh, such a forward thinking thinker on, you know, science, on religious freedom, a lot of this, uh, uh, a lot of the things he learned in Europe that he brought back home with him are, are you know, it's, it's part of what makes America, America today. So, so uh, I just, I think I just see Jefferson as, you know, w- with a fuller picture than, than I did when I was starting out. Derek, great discussion. Just a few follow-up questions I'm curious about. All right, we have Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, three important founding fathers who spent time in Europe. So of those three, who do you think the Europeans liked the most? Well, that's a great question. Um, I think I'd have to go with Benjamin Franklin. Mm-hmm. He he was the life of the party. They loved <laughs> yeah. they loved Franklin. Yeah, right. uh, he didn't speak French very well, but that, that was okay. He just sat there. He was wearing his fur cap. The ladies loved him. Uh, he he had this joie de vivre about him. So I think I think uh, the Europeans, especially the French, loved Franklin, and 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 he certainly loved them back. All right. So so they liked Franklin, but who who did they respect the most? Well, of those three, of those three, you could make a case for John Adams. Um, now, the French government did not respect him, uh, at least not at first. But he he was he wasn't a particularly likable guy. But yeah, he, he but he drove a tough uh, bargain. He he got a he he was one of the negotiators of the Treaty of Paris with with Britain, and he did a very strong job there. I think he surprised the French the French minister with with some of the concessions he could get and. He did a great job getting a loan from from the Dutch for America. You know, we really needed the cash uh, in these early years of the Republic. Uh, so I think people recognize that he was a tough cookie, and I think he probably got some respect there. All right. So uh, for Jefferson, who do you think his favorite president would be, past or present? Well, who do you think? I am, I am going to go with an easy answer. I'm not going to swing for the fences here. I'm going to give you a bunt. And that's James Madison. There you go. Uh, because I know he likes Madison. Yeah, uh, that's true. Yeah, it was wow, easy. That, is that easy. was easy. Come Madison on. was his protege uh, in so many ways. So it, it's such a tough question, I think, in reality, because um, because there, there's you know he he wrote and said so much that you know presidents with very different views have all gravitated towards Jefferson. So FDR obviously raised up Jefferson and and started the, you know, uh, you know, the Jefferson Memorial was built under his watch. Uh, and Reagan did as well. Reagan, Reagan loved Jefferson, said he was a towering figure, uh, referred to him often in, in speeches. Uh, and really all sorts of presidents throughout history have, have looked at, at some aspect of Jefferson's writings on, on you know, uh, on, on freedom or you know, the, the many, the, the many different aspects. So it's really hard to translate into today's world. Uh, you can, you can take a crack at it, but, but I decided to play it safe there. Oh, okay. We'll we'll give you a pass. All right. Here's a fun one. Secret service code names are a fairly modern part of the presidency, but if they existed back in his time, what would Jefferson's secret service code name have been? Well, that's an interesting question. And that, that's certainly not a question I've, I've had before. Um, I think, you know, you know, I think those names are, are pretty playful. So I could see them yeah. calling him thoroughbred. Uh, 
And here's why. So he was described, in fact, somebody once described him, Jefferson, as uh, as looking like a fine horse without a surplus of flesh. You know, he he uh, he seemed like a thoroughbred, not just physically, but he was just so good at so many things. I mean, he was just superlative in, in just about everything he did. And the other reason is he was a, a great horseman. He loved to ride horses. He had fine, fine pedigreed horses his whole life. And as president, he, you know, he was working, he was working very hard. He didn't have a lot of staff, but he would always find time in the middle of the day to go out and ride around on horseback all by himself. So I'm sure if there had been secret service, then they would have hated that. Just Jefferson roaming around the streets of Washington <laughs> on, on his horse. So anyway, I'm going to, I'm going to go with thoroughbred. I, th- I think thoroughbred is great. Okay. I was thinking big red. That big might- red. Big red would be big a great red. One too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, finally, Derek, uh, Jefferson certainly had a way with words. What is your favorite quote of his? Oh, there are a lot. But I, I love this quote of his to John Adams when he was, uh, they were both retired. I like the dreams of the future better than the history of the past. Um, Jefferson, oh, he looked back good. to the past. But he was always looking ahead. He was always an optimist. He was always looking for progress. He was, you know, he was looking ahead to what America could become. Uh, he he had that he had that mind when he traveled. He had that mind his whole life. So uh, so I love that one. All right, Derek. What's next for you? Any new books on the horizon? What you working on? Well, I'm working on uh, a book about the American Revolution as a world war. So. It's it's not it's not well known, or maybe not not as well known as it as it could be that the revolution was fought not just in the thirteen colonies. It, there were battles uh, in the Caribbean, there were battles in the North Sea, in the Mediterranean, uh, even in India. So it w- once France entered the war, they brought some of their other allies into it as well, and there were there were fights against the British Empire. Uh, just really across the globe um, and kind of the fighting in one theater actually affected the fighting uh, here here at home. It affected how many ships the British could send, how many troops they could send, just where everybody was going. So I'm kind of looking at how those pieces interplay. I love that. Great idea. Great idea for a book. When do you expect it to come out? Oh, I would, I'd like it to come out in 2026 when we're we're going to have our 250th anniversary and commemoration of the revolution and, and be thinking about, you know, uh, thinking back about that time quite a bit. So um, if I'll be an optimist like Jefferson, that's that's when I that's when I, I target it for. Well, Derek, uh, thank you so much for taking the time. We hope you had a good time on American POTUS and you'll come back sometime soon. Oh, I'd love to. Thanks again for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the American POTUS podcast. We'd like to thank author Derek Baxter for joining us on this episode about Thomas Jefferson. More information about his terrific book can easily be found on AmericanPOTUS.org. And we would like to thank all of you that have made a tax-deductible financial contribution to support this podcast. In addition to this show, your generosity helps us develop new groundbreaking podcast shows and revolutionary outreach programs, offering clarity and perspective to today's political conversations. If you'd like to contribute, it's easy. Simply visit AmericanPOTUS.org. We appreciate your help. American POTUS is produced by American History Studios, graphic design by Proudler Design, and original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. 
Finally, it's our presidential last word from Thomas Jefferson. Quote, when we get piled upon one another in large cities, as in Europe, we shall become as corrupt as Europe.